Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Tax Security Podcast. Today, we have a really special episode for you. Uh, as the world has gone a bit crazy lately with all the COVID-19 coronavirus spreading around the globe, uh, we have certainly been busy here in the Cisco TAC uh, working on a lot of AnyConnect-related cases. And so today, what we're going to do is talk about AnyConnect and AnyConnect performance, as that is a very, very hot topic amongst uh, enterprises all across the globe that lately have been experiencing a huge influx as all uh, as people all over the globe are starting to work from home. The remote access VPNs have become under siege, if you will. And so we have with us today three very special guests. Well, not all of them are guests, right? We've got Jay Young and Wen Zhang, who have previously hosted the show. Good morning, Jay and Wen. Hello, guys. Good to be back. Jay, how are you doing over there? Good morning. Uh, I'm doing quite well, even though I'm stuck in my uh, little office with little kids running in and jumping on me and like throwing stuff at me when I'm trying to get important stuff done. But uh, such is life, the new world order. Uh, yes, yes. The work from home life that I'm sure all of our listeners out there are experiencing as well. Um, and that is really the, the whole center of the conversation today. And to help us with that conversation, we've also brought in one of our uh, very uh, senior VPN TAC engineer, Shannon Wellington. Good morning, Shannon. Good morning. So, so Shannon, um, we're going to be talking with our listeners today about this uh, huge, huge uptrend we've seen in AnyConnect performance. Uh, I know that we've been bringing in all kinds of additional manpower on the back end to help support, you know, all of our customers that are trying to struggle to uh, support their workers as they're trying to work from home, which in many cases requires people to use remote access VPN. So for us, obviously, that's that's heavy AnyConnect usage. And for a lot of our customers, that's heavy AnyConnect usage. So so let's start to kind of piece that together and jump into that. Um, Shannon, what are some of the what are some of the cases that you're seeing come in? You, you and all of our global teams, uh, what are you seeing them come in um, saying about AnyConnect? How are, and, and what is the overall sort of problem that we're, we're facing right now? Yeah, so as more people are needing to work from home, companies are trying to scale for that increased load on their headends. We're seeing a lot of implementation cases, just new implementations on ASAs, FTDs, even our routers that support VPNs. We're seeing some high CPU cases, licensing cases, uh, just a lot of resource uh, management type things where you know people are needing to scale for that additional performance need. And I know that uh, I think all of you guys, so so Jay, Wynn, and Shannon all work very, very closely in the VPN space and have for years. So I think all of you have put together a collaborative effort and have published some documentation that is very useful for addressing these types of issues. Wynn or Jay, do um, you guys want to kind of speak to that or introduce that document and what we have in there? Sure. Um, we have put together some collaterals um, that will get our customers started real quickly if they're looking at first-time deployments of remote access VPN. And also some of the common issues that Shannon was just talking about. How to identify those symptoms, what are some of the mitigation possibilities, and also a FAQ that's gonna cover most of the common questions that we get from our customers, from partners, um, that include some of the questions that came up from the Cisco security offer for uh, uh, products offerings on 
umbrella on Duo, on ASA, remote access VPN licenses to fight this uh, global pan pandemic. We will share the link to the document uh, in our show notes. And so, yeah, so as, as, you, as you just mentioned, when so we've, we're offering licenses, Cisco is offering licenses so that both customers who are already have any connect implementations can scale them up, right? And we have a, a number of ways we're going to talk about doing that or customers who maybe are adopting remote access VPN or the whole work from home concept in tandem with remote access VPN for the very first time. So uh, we, we've, we've got a list here of things like potential mitigation steps that we can do. So in general, see so what we what we're seeing here are, are customers that maybe have twenty percent or thirty percent work from home users, right? Um, let's say you have a hundred users in your organization or a thousand users. Most customers have designed their networks to scale such that you know twenty to thirty percent of those workers at any given time could work from home. Now we're seeing roughly a hundred percent work from home for organizations where working from home makes sense, and that is just overrunning these firewalls. So. As we have all of these cases coming in, we have been putting together or noticing case patterns where customers are having uh, problems related to performance. A lot of times it's throughput performance. So we want to talk a little bit about user limits versus throughput limits, because a lot of times there's uh, a preconceived notion that just because your platform supports a thousand users, you should be able to have a thousand users and have no problems. right? And, Often we find that's not the case. Usually you hit throughput limits before user limits, at least in the real world, it seems that way. And so you may end up with high CPU utilization or, um, or other types of it scalability issues before you hit that maximum you know, hard platform limit. So those are some of the things that we see coming in in the TAC. And uh, we're gonna talk a little bit about some of the potential mitigations that we've been doing with, with our customers out there. And we may uh, talk about some anecdotes as well. So, you know, a lot of us have been working these VPN cases. I know, you know, Jay Wynn and Shannon, you all have been on these escalations, um, you know, every day pretty much where we're, we're digging through these. So we'll talk about what we've been seeing in the field to help kind of balance uh, or supplement some of these steps that we're looking at here. And again, the document that Wynn mentioned is going to be in the show notes along with the document links uh, surrounding licensing and other information that'll be really helpful for you as you're navigating through this uh, COVID-19 pandemic and, and how uh, we can help you with your remote access VPN uh, throughput and performance. Kevin, you, you brought up briefly the, the concept of platform limitations versus uh, the scale limitations on data sheets versus the number of users that you would expect to, to see in the real world. I mean, that, that, that has been a, an interesting one to take a look at over these last weeks, right? We've, we've seen certainly some cases where they're saying, I've got this Firepower 2100 device that says on the data sheet, I can get 5,000 users. But when we start hitting about 2,000 users, this box is, is getting close to its capacity. So, so what's the deal with, with here, Cisco, right? So um, one thing that, that, that we want to, you have to take into consideration is, is the profile of what your type of users are doing, right? Um, so when we talk about 5,000 users, 
yes, we can absolutely bring on 5,000 users at the same time and, and deal with that control plane, that management of those users, but with the expectation that those users aren't doing very, very much at all. They're not sending a lot of traffic back and forth. Um, I, I, I saw an interesting use case once where, where a bank was using ASAs and any connectors uh, uh, remote access platforms and where they were deploying it is they had all their little ATMs out in the field or whatnot. They were all sitting behind a custom little box that was an AnyConnect client and and making a connection back to the to the head end. So it was, it was those kinds of really they had lots and lots of connections, but those traffic wasn't being used a lot. Um, and that in those cases, yeah, the the platforms were able to handle things very very fine. But what we're seeing now is when I'm at home, I may be doing a bit of YouTube, learning on YouTube, um, streaming like that, or WebEx having conferences with where I've got audio and video being sent, and then emails back and forth, and all these other kinds of things that would classify me as a heavy user. So when you get into those kinds of cases where you have users that are using quite a significant amount of bandwidth, then... Um, that number of that platform limit definitely does seem to go down and you start hitting other bottlenecks. Just to add what Jay is saying, uh, there's really two bottlenecks that you need to potentially look at. One is the platform aggregate throughput. Uh, this is usually taxing the system on a data plane. There is also the number of sessions, which usually taxes the system on the control plane. Uh, you can't just look at one without looking at the other, uh, because you're really gonna have to look at this as a whole, right? Some may hit one limit before the other. And also keep in mind that when we talk about uh, networking and the network traffic, uh, we use the term throughput, right? But throughput is not throughput in the sense that, um, let's say you have a throughput limit of one gigabits per second but you could have different traffic profiles that can reach that throughput. You could have a lot of very large packets that um, yield a aggregate throughput of one gigabits per second, or you could have a lot of voice traffic. These are usually very small packets. And I think as most of our audiences would already know, uh, small packets and a lot of them is usually what's bringing down a network device to its knees, right? That's usually is, what's more important when it comes to uh, network device performance. So those are all the things you have to factor in, right? Just looking at one number in a single dimensional kind of way uh, usually is not good enough. When we're talking about property sizing your network equipment uh, uh, or looking at maybe some of the scale limit uh, for your particular deployment. I know Shannon and Jay, you guys have been doing some testing in the lab. Do you want to add some color to um, that point based on what you were, you've been testing? Yeah, and so to add to your point, uh, we did do some testing in the lab using different packet sizes and different uh, throughput, uh, like in terms of sending a certain amount of throughput. And we did find, of course, that sending those smaller packets, I think they were 250 bytes, added around 20% or 30% more CPU percentage than having 
say, a thousand bytes of the same uh, amount of traffic. So knowing what type of applications that your users are going to be running, if they're doing a lot of streaming or a lot of bursty traffic, that can help you to determine what exactly your your uh, device will be able to handle, and uh, so and it's it's good to have those those uh, numbers, and it's not a one-dimensional uh, figure that that throughput maximum. You know, and that reminds me of an anecdote that we saw recently. I know Jay, you and I worked on a case recently with a large telecom provider, um, ISP, and we were seeing that they weren't they had made the claim right that they should be able to get you know one gigabit per second or 700 megs whatever it was through their firewall and they weren't quite reaching that and yet their cpu utilization was elevated relative to the overall throughput from the customer perspective at that time right and so uh, jay went through and did some awesome lab work and spun up a bunch of simulated any connect clients and we did some playing around with packet sizes and what we were finding was that if we moved packet sizes down to about 400 bytes, for example, our throughput was cut into roughly half versus if we did 1,000 byte packets. So it's not a perfect sliding scale necessarily, but uh, you know, in general, we see that you know the smaller the packet size, by far the higher your CPU utilization will go per actual byte of throughput. And so. Uh, you can use things like, you know, for, for all of our listeners out there, you know, there are ways on the ASAs and FTDs that you can look at this. You know, you can use the show traffic output from the CLI that will show you your input bytes per second and your input packets per second over one and five minute timeframes. And you can quickly do the math, just divide, you know, the total bytes by packets and you can get a per packet size on average. So some of those things we do in the TAC when we're helping our customers figure out you know, why they might be running into throughput issues when the overall throughput um, or utilization, you know, issues when the throughput isn't necessarily as high as, as the data sheet would imply that it should get to. Good point, Kevin. Uh, and here is also one, um, maybe a little known secret. Um, we know show traffic will show you the aggregate um, traffic statistics, uh, but there is, uh, there is also a knob that you can enable on the ASA. The command is sysop traffic detailed statistics. Uh, this is an enhancement that we added back in, I believe, 9.3 or 9.4 uh, timeframe, where with this command enabled, you're going to get a, a detailed traffic distribution uh, in the show traffic output. So it will become very useful in times like this where you want it to not only just to get an average, but actual detailed breakdown of what is the majority of the traffic look like in your network environment. Yeah, that's a great point, Wen. So, um, so that's that's fantastic. There are great tools out there. We just want to make sure that you, our listeners, are aware of those tools and how you can quickly identify whether you are in fact experiencing utilization that would be expected based on your tra traffic profile or if there is something in, in the environment or something that is amiss and unexpected from a behavioral perspective. So let's talk a little bit about uh, mitigation strategies, right? We've talked about, uh, and we're not going to go into huge detail on these because the the document that you referenced before that were, that is going to be in the show notes and that we, we kind of referenced at the beginning of the show, we'll talk about all this in detail. 
But at, at a higher level, let's, you know, things like split tunneling, you know, is one of the one of the first things that always comes to mind. We have a lot of customers that as they're scaling up their VPN infrastructure or as their existing infrastructure is getting to a breaking point, what we what we often see is that some of our customers are adopting the split tunneling uh, policies where not all of their traffic is backhauled across their VPN, uh, their their head end uh, at their corporate headquarters so or wherever it, the head end may be. So that is one thing that we're seeing out there in the field. And of course, there are some security implications with that. So maybe not necessarily your, your first stop, but it is certainly probably one of the more effective ones as you can quickly offload all of your non-corporate traffic or your non-enterprise traffic out, you know, to YouTube or, you know, out wherever on the internet that you're, you know, where a lot of the traffic's actually going, you know, not all of that has to get put through the, the crypto process on your, on your head end. So, so Kevin, let's talk about that for a second, right? So when, when we're talking about VPNs and split tunnels and whatnot, there's a, this kind of a policy that you can push down. You can say, when you VPN, you're going to send all your traffic up over the tunnel to the head end, and then the head end will be able to do whatever, it, whatever you do with it, right? Um, another concept is let's define specifically what you can or what you should send across the tunnel and everything else should go out to the internet. That's what we call split include. You're saying what traffic should be included to go across the VPN. In addition, we have another concept of let's tunnel everything except for some explicit things. So like if we know uh, where YouTube is or something like that, we can say, if you're going to YouTube, go out your normal WAN and don't go across the VPN, um, but everything else should go across the VPN. Now, those have been interesting because it's defined based on IP addresses. So the policy has been very difficult to, to, to get right, especially in the split exclude kind of space. So generally the, the deployments we see out there are tunnel everything and split include, meaning I'm just going to tell you what to go uh, what to go across the tunnel. The security policy has been a bit difficult there because there's a concept of well maybe some attacks might come in across your internet, hit your computer, and then they can bounce up over the tunnel up to your head end. So we might not want to do that. Now is a time when we've uh, with our acquisition of OpenDNS and bringing that in under umbrella. And what we're doing right now with the, the COVID-19 licensing is we're, we're able to provide a solution where we can provide you the protection of the malware and whatnot using DNS filtering and, and blocking and also give you a chance to go towards more of a split tunneling capability because you know you've got that endpoint protection with umbrella on there or potentially amp on your endpoints or whatnot so so now you're kind of breaking down some of these requirements of having to send stuff across the vpn so um not only are we including 90-day trials for any connect part of that work from home package is we're including trials for webex and umbrella and potentially asavs so that we can you could spin up a piece ahead and relatively quickly without any hardware. So uh, I would take, I would suggest everyone to, to take a look at the free trials that Cisco's are offering over the next three, three months. 
and see what pieces you can put together to try and address some of those those issues that you can have when you start running out of capacity on your head end. I just wanted to add something to that really quick. Uh, uh, we are also offering Duo as well. So I know that security is all, uh, you know, is a concern for remote access. So can also add multi-factor authentication for those uh, two. So to add on what we were talking about earlier, um, you've got this concept of split tunneling, uh, tunnel all, and then split exclude. Traditionally, you've done that via by, by specifying the destinations, what you want to go across the tunnel, what you want to go outside of the tunnel. And that's done by the, the IP address destinations, whether that be IPv4 or IPv6. The problem that we've got now today is that if you try to use a service like YouTube or whatnot, um, you don't know where that is hosted in a cloud environment. It actually can be hosted in many, many different locations and can change from even on an hourly basis or even potentially on a minute, minute by minute basis. So updating the policy is going to be really difficult and pretty much an impossible task, right? So uh, in 4.6, AnyConnect 4.6, we added this capability to dynamically determine whether or not you're going across a VPN. And that was, and that's based on the FQDN of that, what you're trying to reach. So say I loaded in Netflix, um, it goes off and does a DNS query. What we can do is we can pass down these FQDNs to say, this is what we want to send across the tunnel, and this is what we want to exclude from the tunnel. So based off the FQDN, that's how it gets split. Where this works really well is, of course, like YouTube or Netflix or streaming services, those kinds of things that are not really, you don't want that going across your, your network tunnels or things like that, right? But also applications that are critical for your business, things like Office 365 and WebExes, right? Where you, you need voice and video, but you don't want that to hit your head end. So what what we've actually done is we've created a document here within the tag. We got some guidance from Microsoft and we talked to the WebEx tax guys and we built out a document which tells you follow these steps and we'll generate the necessary config for you to do this split excluding of traffic for the software as a service, but still have that tunnel all policy. So in addition to what Jay and Shannon just mentioned, uh, I, I do want to raise the point about uh, whether you want split tunneling or not, right? That is really your decision according to your security policy. Uh, this is actually one of the questions that we often get. Should we do split tunneling? Now, we can tell customers what split tunneling is and how to implement it and to what granularity. But at the end of the day, whether you do split tunneling or not really depends on what is your corporate security policy. Having full tunneling uh, give you the benefit of backhauling all the end user traffic to go through your corporate perimeter security, be it malware detection, email, uh, what have you. Once you implement split tunneling, you do open up some possibilities for security exploit, right? So those are the things that you really would have to consider. You know, what is your attack surface? Do you have a policy about endpoint security, you know, what sort of a protection do you want to enforce on the end devices? And do you have a way of monitoring and enforcing those policies? Those are all the kind of things that you should consider when um, looking at the possibility of doing split tunneling. 
So yes, split tunneling obviously can be very, very effective because you can offload a significant portion of your traffic. But as as all three of you have very well stated, you know, it's not something to be just flipped, right? It's not a, a button you just press. It's something that has to be done with some consideration. Uh, looking into some of the, the protocol side, I know that, you know, different crypto protocols, different algorithms that we use for hashing, encryption, um, key exchange, et cetera, may have different impacts in terms of performance. Are there certain things that, that we're seeing in the field? Uh, I'll, I'll throw this one out there to you, Shannon. Are there cer certain things that we're seeing in the field or certain protocols that we're seeing success with in customer environments where they maybe move to AES or something over uh, some sort of elliptic curve cryptography? I don't know. Um, you know, I, I don't have the answer, but are, are, what are we seeing out there in the field and what are some things that we can do from a protocol suite perspective to improve performance? Sure. So we get a few performance cases every now and then. Uh, and as a general recommendation, we recommend to use either DTLS or IKE v2 over just TLS. Uh, those offer just in general, better performance. Uh, along with that, we have tested that using ASGCM ciphers. So those are possible within T, uh, TLS, DTLS, and IKE v2. But using them with IKE v2 and uh, DTLS 1.2, which is supported in uh, ASA codes 9, 10, and later, uh, those offer significant import, uh, performance boosts compared to TLS. So in general, for uh, protocols, we recommend using those if possible uh, for either IKE v1 or our IPsec, AnyConnect sessions, or SSL, just uh, having uh, DTLS or IKE v2. And the, the less scary version of that is we have those as defaults now. So uh, as long as you're running, you know, uh, a very recently version of AnyConnect for, I think it was 4.7 and above, and uh, ASA 9.10 and above, those defaults are already set. So you don't actually have to do anything. You just have to make sure that you have those matched up, and then you're going to get those performance benefits for you. Uh, you don't have to necessarily go through and make sure all everything's lined up correctly. So if a, if a customer were to have upgraded from an earlier version, that, that could be something they may want to check, right? In terms of if they're seeing their performance, they do what? Show run SSL, and that'll show them which, uh, on the, in the CLI, that will show them which algorithms they're using, correct? Uh, well, yeah, if, if you do show VPN session DB um, detailed, and then you, you hone in on one specific session, you can actually see at the TLS level and, and at the DTLS level what ciphers are being used. And yeah, we're, we're suggesting that you use AES-GCM, that's Galeos Cantor mode, um, because that's a combined cipher. It does the integrity as well as encryption check, the, the encipherment check, all in one method whereas traditionally those have been separated out into two different things, uh, AES being a cipher, uh, like AES-CVC being the cipher, and SHA-1 or SHA-2 HMAC being the integrity check. Um, with these combined cipher modes, they're actually implemented and, and they can be put done in hardware in, 
in a much more efficient way. So it, it's a great boom for both crypto chips, but also for, from a software perspective. And just you just get free free performance boosts just by making sure that you're using those. And these are defaults. So uh, you can configure DTLS to either be disabled or enabled under the global web VPN settings or the group policies. But uh, unless they've been changed, these are the defaults. So customers may not need to worry about them. But if they have been, <clears throat> if they have been disabled, those are things that you can consider enabling. Great information, guys. So another thing we want to talk about briefly is the the concept of SSL bias. We have a lot of platforms that do hardware crypto acceleration, so all the encrypt decrypt operations, random key generation, etc. Maybe done in hardware through. ASICs that are designed to do that. A lot more efficient, obviously, as most of our listeners are probably aware. But as with anything, they still have their limits. So we have seen some situations where on some of our hardware platforms, those crypto accelerators may become the bottleneck on the platform. And in that particular situation, we do have the ability to reallocate the cores in those crypto accelerators to the SSL or TLS you know, VPN process versus IPsec. So they're effectively pinned to doing one or the other inside the crypto accelerator. And you can use the uh, show crypto, well, show crypto accelerator statistics. We'll show you the statistics there, but you can actually change that bias towards SSL, which will improve your AnyConnect throughput if you have a hardware platform that supports it. So just be aware of that. We do have all of that documented in, um, in the the primary document that Shannon, Wynn, and Jay have drafted up as a result of this, uh, all of this VPN uh, usage spike as part of the COVID-19 pandemic. A few things that we've seen here very recently in the past couple of weeks uh, involve the ASAV platform. So we've had some customers that either already have virtualized environments or are even running ASAVs and those get overrun. So we see some of our customers are also spinning up additional ASAV platforms, uh, which is you know a lot of times something you can do without having to buy additional hardware. You can simply spin them up in existing virtual environments, and that gives you additional ways that you can then use things like DNS round robin load balancing to those different ASA or FTD instances inside your virtual infrastructure, and you're able to scale up that way. We were working um, with a customer, a, a really large bank here just recently, who had spun up several dozen additional ASAVs to accommodate tens of thousands of remote workers that, that previously they didn't have capacity to do. So in the interim, obviously, you know, upgrading firewalls, physical firewalls is something that is, you know, potentially on the table, you know, especially if we move to work from home as an increasing trend longer term. But in the short term, you know, there's shipping times and, and implementation times and all that, which can be challenging. So definitely something to keep in mind is that you can also consider spinning up virtualized instances of both the ASA and FTD in your environment to help you scale up uh, as you uh, need to have a larger user base. And so uh, on, on that note, one, one of the other things that, that I wanted to make sure we mentioned at some point during this podcast is when we when we see that we have what we think is a VPN performance issue, a lot of times there is a, a desire or a tendency to, to automatically say, okay, my, my ASA V or ASA or FTD device is oversubscribed, right? Um, while that may be the case and while often, you know, show CPU or the show crypto output 
um, will help you ascertain whether or not that's the case. A lot of times with when you have traffic spikes like this and you have a lot of different types of traffic going across potentially different portions of your network infrastructure, you want to make sure you're not prematurely ruling out or making any assumptions about where the bottlenecks may be. We recently just had a, a very large escalation uh, with a bank um, and they were having trouble figuring out exactly where the, the bottleneck was. It, it was perceived to be on ASAs, but ultimately when we went through and, and used things like packet captures and existing tools that we have on, on the ASA and FTD platform, we were able to go through and, and trace it back to some internal infrastructure. In this case, they had some other internal firewalls going on that were actually oversubscribed. So it wasn't even the VPN infrastructure that had the problem, but it appeared that our throughput was being limited. Um, and there was concern that maybe the, the ASAVs couldn't handle the load, but in reality, there was something else in the infrastructure that was the breaking point in the in the end-to-end -end path. So it's very important not to get too myopic when you're troubleshooting these performance issues and you make sure that you, you know, as always, follow a methodical approach, find some traffic that is failing or that is slow or where you see packets being retransmitted across the VPN and try and trace those through your network and don't just assume it's happening in the the crypto encrypt decrypt process on your on your firewall itself because that may not be the case right so i just want to make sure that we we put that caveat out there as customers worldwide are trying to address these issues a lot of times they are on the the firewall platform itself doing the vpn crypto operations but sometimes it can be somewhere else in the network and in fact once you identify and fix certain bottlenecks in your network you know you then might find that that bottleneck then just moves somewhere else so it, it's it's a bit of a a tricky trial and error related uh, pro process sometimes, but it's something that has to be done when you have these kind of traffic pattern changes. And I just want to make sure that everyone is very clear that that is something that needs to be taken into consideration here. And Kevin, uh, really good point, uh, because that bottleneck may not even be in the network. Uh, think about all of a sudden you have a 300% increase in remote access sessions, right? That could add all sorts of load on these integration components on the backend systems. Uh, for example, how are you authenticating these users? Is it RADIUS? Is it LDAP? Are you doing certificates? Are you doing CRL checking? All of that can uh, have a, a choke point, right, on these application resources that could also be a problem. So not just VPN, not just the network resources, not just the link to the provider that could be oversubscribed, but also applications all across your entire network that's part of the solution. So um, don't leave any stones unturned you know, when you investigate these sort of a problems. Yeah, and one other thing on that note is you know, we get a lot of questions from customers that come in and they say, hey, you know, I've got 60% CPU, I'm pushing 600 megabits on my platform. Is this a problem? You know, is this okay? And Obviously, there's no perfect answer to that, but there are general guidelines that you can use or follow to try and ascertain whether or not what you're seeing is experienced, uh, I'm sorry, is expected behavior, or if there's something that, that's a problem that needs to be addressed. And so things like, you know, good old, you know, ASA FTD commands that we have uh, for normal troubleshooting, things like overruns on interfaces. You know, if you have an overrun, that means you're exceeding the capacity of a single interface. Underruns would be transmitting, trying to transmit out that interface. So that can all be seen in the interface statistics. Of course, your show CPU output correlates to the overall 
uh, crypto overhead that's being done on the firewall. So if you're generally speaking, if you're under 80%, you're, you're, you're pretty safe there. Um, there's also the notion of show CPU hogs. So if your CPU complex is being periodically hit, whether it's traffic bursts or some other operation that's happening in control plane, you might see CPU hogs occur. And you can see that in the show proc CPU hogs output. So just some things to keep in mind that there, and there's a lot of information out there on these types of troubleshooting tools from a platform performance troubleshooting perspective, but those can be used to help kind of determine what is going on and whether, whether something is normal or not. I would say, you know, don't just look at a data sheet and say, okay, it's one gig. And I know we touched on this earlier, but if it says one gig and you're at 500 megs, but you're also uh, at 70%, you know, CPU utilization, instead of just opening attack case and saying, Hey, do the calculation. Our goal here is to help you look at things like your average packet size, your throughput, you know, relative, look, take all of those factors into consideration, kind of do some, some dirty math and figure out, am I in the ballpark? And in most cases, uh, you know, apart from the, the rare corner cases where, you know, people may be hitting some software defect or something or have a very rare traffic profile. In most cases, uh, it, it, what, there's an explanation in the traffic profile that explains the utilization on the CPU side. So Kevin, right? Say I've done all that, right? I've gone through this. We've looked at all the show commands and the hogs and whatnot. We've done the SSL bias where appropriate. We've switched over and we're using GCM. We've done split tunneling um, to try and reduce our load, but we're still, we're, we're just oversubscribing. We're hitting a point where we're just maxing our CPU or capacity, right? Uh, what kind of things or options do we have at this point then? Where where would we go from here? I need to get my business running again. Yeah, so those are great questions, Jay, and, and ones that we've seen in large quantity here in recent days. So some things that we see customers doing are, you know, once assuming that we've looked into split tunneling or we've looked into protocol selection, SSL bias, everything that we can do that's, you know, what we would consider relatively lightweight. Once those lighter weight changes have been done, we have to consider more more dramatic you know, steps that we may take in terms of what are how our deployments set up overall. In some cases, we've seen customers move from, for example, if you have two firewalls, usually they're you know, in an HA pair. We've seen some customers break those up into single standalone VPN termination points, and then use some things like DNS round robin load balancing so that you know, if one of those ASAs then fails, of course, you know, you do have that that hit, but you effectively double your capacity there. So that's certainly an option that, you know, a customer could could do. We've seen customers be able to do that just in a maintenance window, you know, changing out all the configuration, uh, tearing down failover, et cetera, and effectively doubling their capacity. We've also seen some customers that have spun up ASAVs, as I mentioned earlier. And if you're and if you're running an ASAV and you're trying to increase throughput there, there are some other things that can be done like CPU pinning, um, maybe in changing our VMX net adapters on those ASAV platforms. So won't jump into minute detail on the ASAV platform, but there are additional things that can be done on the virtualized platforms as well to better leverage the underlying hardware resources or, or at least make them dedicated to the ASA or FTDV that are running on those devices. So those are a couple things. Um, I know that there there's VPN load balancing. So if you're running ASA, you know, you have the option to use a VPN load balancing configuration so that, you know, you have a virtual IP address and you're actually uh, load balancing the 
the VPN sessions across multiple units. Um, in, in a lot of cases, though, that's a little bit more o overhead to configure versus breaking out a, an existing HA pair. But if you've already got a VPN load balancing set up there, you could always add additional units to it to, to try and scale out a bit more as well. So those are, you know, those are some of the things that we've seen and some of the steps that we've seen customers take, at least in the short to medium term, to try and ease the pain of all of this rapid additional AnyConnect traffic people are seeing. Hey, Jay, uh, I know you understand VPN load balancing pretty well. Um, one of the common questions that came up from customers was, can I use a mixed type of devices? ASAs, uh, ASAVs, can, that, can I use all of them in a um, single VPN load balancing cluster? And they yeah. obviously have different capabilities, different scale limits, right? Can you just kind of describe quickly how the load balancing algorithm is performed? Like how does, it, how does the master know which um, load balancer member it should send the next uh, session to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, th this VPN load balancing concept has been around for, for a very long time. So if any of you uh, old timers remember the, the Cisco VPN client, uh, with the, or we called it the Unity client, it actually even worked with uh, the Cisco VPN 3000 concentrators that, that we came through the Altiga in, uh, in acquisition. So when, when we made that switch from um, Altiga, or the VPN concentrators to, to the ASAs, the PIX ASAs, that question was happen, happened there too. Can we mix and match the hardware? And, and the short answer is yes, we can. The, the way these load balance clusters work is it's essentially you get, it's a kind of similar model as HSRP, right? You get three or four or how many you want all lined up with the same inside interface and the same outside interface on the same LAN. They communicate with each other. They elect a master that owns a virtual IP address. So when one of the requests comes in, it comes into that virtual IP address. The master accepts that connection and then it, via communication with the other members, determines who has the capacity to service this incoming request. It will then send a message back to the client and say, disconnect from the virtual IP, and this is the IP or the FQDN that you should go to instead of the VIP. So the client disconnects, and then it goes ahead and connects to that. With the Unity client, um, it, was a, it, it was a specific message within the IKEV1 uh, exchange uh, with any connect, whether it's in IKV2 or um, SSL, it's the same kind of concept. You get a, re uh, a redirect back off the VIP into one of the other members. That, uh, so it makes a direct reconnection to the specific cluster that it's been told to go to, cluster member it's been told to go to. Now, the way the, um, the member is chosen is at a very simple level, it, it, it's a little bit crude, but can be tweaked to various different factors. But it, you take a look at the number that that platform can um, support, say like an ASA 5585, uh, right? That can do 10,000 connections. It take, and we, so we take the number that it's currently have divided by the, the platform limitation, and that gives you a percent of how heavily it's loaded. 
So then it looks across the cluster and says, which one has the lowest percentage? That's the one that's going to get it. Now, as I mentioned, there's, there's, there's ways that you can tune those numbers. So maybe you don't want one box, even though the ASA 5585 has a really high number, maybe you don't want it to be terminating a lot of remote access, probably because it's terminating some land-to-lands or something like that, right? So there's ways to tweak and weight those systems, but it's it's a at a, at a basic uh, default level, it's a very crude of just what percentage of capacity are you currently at? The one that is least loaded, you're the one that I'm going to select to uh, have you, the, the people redirected to. So that's way more than I know about VPN load balancing. So thank you for giving us uh, that detailed information, Jay. So up to this point, and and for our listeners out there, you may have noticed there's a little bit more background noise than you probably have heard in the past on these podcasts. And uh, that's just because we're all working from home as well. So we all have our families here hold up in our homes and we're recording uh, remotely. So you may hear some kids in the background. I know we've had some of our neighbors uh, decided to all mow their lawns at the same time. Um, while we started to record this podcast. So yeah, please forgive the background noise. Uh, I'm sure that you all have probably had some of the, all of our listeners out there have had some of the similar experiences as well. Um, but before we wrap up today, up to this point, we've really been focused on performance and performance mitigation. But with the rapid uptick in overall VPN traffic, there's probably going to be situations out there where our VPN or network administrators are having to troubleshoot connectivity issues across VPNs that maybe aren't oversubscribed. And there are some tools out there and some tactics that we have. Um, we don't want to spend a crazy amount of time on this since we are focused on performance. But but Shannon, uh, could you maybe go over two or three of the sort of the top tools that we have uh, that we would recommend to customers that maybe aren't familiar or comfortable troubleshooting VPN? If, say, you've got a user out there and they're coming across remote access, any connect VPN, right? And they're trying to access some internal resource and the thing's failing on the ASA or FTD platform. What are some of the maybe top three steps and tools that you would recommend for for that person to try and troubleshoot the flow? So uh, we tend to, well, there's a lot of different tools based on the issue. If we're having more of a performance issue where, you know, we're just not able to establish a connection, will do general debugs, but if it looks like those packets aren't making it to the head end, we'll do packet captures on the ASA, as well as the using your favorite uh, capture packet capture tool on the client to confirm that those packets are making it there. Uh, if it's an issue where they're able to connect, but unable to reach certain resources, you know, we do, by default, AnyConnect will do tunnel all. However, if a split tunnel is used, we want to make sure that that's included. If this ASA is you has a if it has a PAT statement to basically allow internal users to reach the internet, we want to have an identity NAT or no NAT to essentially make sure that AnyConnect traffic isn't uh, being padded so that it can go to the client. Additionally, you know, sometimes it's an issue with routing. So we can do captures on the internal interfaces to make sure that that traffic is leaving the ASA and checking if we get a response back. So we can just do a ping from the client, see if that's reaching the internal interface 
and if a echo reply is coming back. So those are sort of general things we can do. We can also do ASP captures to see if there's any drops. And, uh, you know, it's just a matter of uh, doing the ASP drop capture and doing a pipe include for the, tra the interesting traffic. So uh, those, are all, those are the most common, I'd say, tools that we use and can solve a lot of different connection issues. Um, actually, there's one more that I want to mention. Uh, the packet tracer feature has been really helpful, in my opinion, for just determining very simple issues, like you know, if there's a incorrect NAT statement. Like if we're not hitting NAT, the appropriate identity NAT that we created, that can be used to determine if uh, if we're hitting something else. It can also determine if routing is wrong and we're not egressing the correct interface. So uh, that can be used for uh, a lot of troubleshooting as well. Absolutely love that you brought up packet captures and packet tracer, two of my favorite tools on the platform. So if listeners out there, if you haven't used packet capturing tools or packet the packet tracer tool on the ASA or FTD platforms, go check it out. We have documentation out there that explains how to use it, but definitely go and check that out and we'll put some links in the, in the show notes as well for that. So thank you, Shannon, for those uh, really useful troubleshooting tools that customers can use for troubleshooting connectivity across VPN tunnels. Uh, when, as, there, as we get to wrap up here, are there any sort of last words that you'd like to leave our customers and listeners out there with as, uh, as, we, as they move forward in their remote access VPN ramp ups and, and journeys in, in the midst of all this crazy pandemic stuff? Uh, sure. Uh, I guess we'll, we'll up-level it, right? It's not just remote access VPN. I think it, um, uh, some of the experiences that we had encountered in the last couple of weeks really exposed some of the, uh, the problems that maybe we're having um, every day, but they're just, they just have not manifested themselves in a significant manner that we paid attention to. For example, um, uh, it's not uncommon for us when we troubleshoot end-to-end uh, -end traffic issues, as you mentioned, right? We need to understand what are all the potential choke points in a network. But as we all know, some of the, uh, especially the larger customers, right? The security group may not necessarily talk to the networking group. Uh, on a topology map, maybe you just see a little line that connects these two devices, whereas in the underlying network infrastructure, right? Could be a switch, could be multiple switches, could be switch configured in all sorts of redundant ways. Uh, those are the things that we really need to know when we troubleshoot. Uh, you know, it could just be an overrun in one of those interfaces somewhere. And secondly, um, we really need to have a good understanding of the network performance metrics baseline, right? What is your normal traffic load? Uh, because what defines normal is what's going to make certain resource measurement, say, excessively high. That could be CPU, that could be memory. Uh, we, we need to know under normal operating conditions and during normal business hours what those uh, resource measure, measurements are. And we can use that to compare what we're seeing during high resource utilization, just to get an idea um, what sort of 
load that we're looking at, or if there's any potential problems that we need to investigate. And lastly, um, I think it's also important that um, there are certain operational um, best practices that we should always follow, right? Whether there's a problem or not. Now, when you're running at 50% CPU usage, you may not pay that much attention to the CPU cycles that you're spinning, but not uh, that's not necessary. For example, you know you could be logging to four syslog servers. 50% CPU may not be a problem, but as you increase your traffic load by 200%, 300%, you're approaching the ceiling of 85, 90% CPU. Now that could all of a sudden become a problem and become a huge problem, right? So uh, this just enforces the idea of just because there isn't a problem now, you know, doesn't mean we shouldn't pay attention to some of these resource management uh, measures, um, some of these key metrics and operational best practices. Now, that's a great point, Wen. Thanks for thanks for kind of bringing it around and in, in a more general level. So. Yeah, so the takeaway that I get from that is, you know, even if you're out there listening to this and maybe you're not experiencing any connect or remote access VPN oversubscription of any kind, doesn't mean it's too early to start looking at your infrastructure, you know, get ahead of the curve, take a look at it and see if there are areas where you can optimize, right? You can you can make sure that things are configured per best practices and remove things that you may not need. Also a great time to check your, you know, your device monitoring strategies. We've seen lots of cases uh, with customers out there very recently where, you know, in in one case I mentioned, you know, they there's another firewall in the path, for example, and maybe that CPU is is spiked and it's at it's at 90% CPU, but you weren't monitoring that one, right? And so now you're troubleshooting the wrong device, perhaps is a, is a potential thing. And so we see these kinds of things all the time in the TAC, and it's important uh, to understand that you need to have holistic you know, comprehensive monitoring, if you're doing SNMP um, or if you're doing NetFlow from devices, just a good time to take all that into consideration and, and make sure you have a holistic strategy to monitor your environment and uh, and don't don't rule anything out prematurely or, or make any assumptions when you're tracking down these issues. You got to make sure you follow the data and not your not not some sort of presupposition or assumption. So. All right. Um, well, I think that pretty much covers uh, what we wanted to cover today. Shannon, did you have any uh, anything you wanted to leave our customers with as well, or our listeners with out there before we before we call it a wrap? I think the only thing that I wanted to add that we didn't really uh, get too much conversation on was in terms of licensing. I know we've been getting a lot of questions regarding that. Uh, just really quick, just some high-level things. When... W- with the free license that, well, the free temporary license that any uh, Cisco is providing for AnyConnect, uh, when that device is activated it, on the ASA or FTD, it will activate all users. Uh, well, it'll activate the total user maximum count for the device. And so we've been seeing a lot of questions in regards to that. Uh, Cisco switched up the licensing uh, from the premium and essential uh, method to the Apex and Plus. And so uh, those licenses will unlock the full amount. 
and it's based on uh, authorized users rather than concurrent concurrent sessions. So just wanted to let everyone know that uh, that is when you get that license, I think it's a 50 user license, it unlocks the entire uh, device's uh, user count. No, that's a great point. And thanks for for mentioning that. We we certainly have been getting a number of questions related to licensing, Shannon, as you mentioned. And so if you're out there listening to this, make sure you go back and check the show notes that we'll have posted. Um, really important um, to, to look through those. We'll have a lot of FAQs. There's, we've got some documents dedicated to licensing that you'll find there that you can go and get a lot of your questions answered. But Shannon, definitely thanks for bringing that up because that is a uh, another another area that people can struggle with when they're uh, working through this this uh, RAVPN ramp up. So with that, um, really appreciate all of our listeners out there taking the time to listen to this. I, I know that I was um, personally excited to go ahead and record this episode for all of you. Um, because of the timing of all of this, you know, we're all in this together. Um, the, the interesting thing about this COVID-19 pandemic is it really has brought people together in, in fairly unique ways. And so, you know, from a from a Cisco to our listener perspective, you know, we're here for you. We're, we're working with each and every one of you um, at some point, you know, case by case basis, but we're, we're here for you. So let us know if you have any questions. Of course, you can always reach out to us at the Tax Security Podcast. Um, and the various methods that we have, we're on, we're on Twitter. Of course, you can, uh, you can catch us in a, in a myriad of ways from the website as well. All the contact information is there. So we look forward to hearing your feedback. Hopefully, you found that this podcast contains some good information. We hope that it's, it really helps all of you as you're, as you're working through this, this difficult time, and especially when it comes to your RAVP and AnyConnect performance. So that said... We will see you again when we do the next Tax Security Podcast. Uh, Hopefully, we'll have another one recorded for you soon from our homes here as we are all in quarantine. But until then, we will catch you next time, and thank you for listening.